Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast, where we share stories about those who have fought to overcome addiction. Join us every Tuesday and Thursday for the latest stories, tools, and tricks to sobriety. Now, here's your host, Brock Bevel. I'm here with my man, Raul Rivas. Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast. Man, we had a couple minutes before this. I am I'm kind of excited to talk about it, but then again, I'm kind of like, man, we're gonna go back and check and, and empty some trash cans today. Yes, sir. But I wanna I wanna let people know who you are. I'm talking, I'm talking to an 18-year SWAT veteran. My man Raul Rivas grew up in Orlando. Okay. After graduating high school, he attended college and obtained an associate's degree in business, enlisted in the Army Reserves, went overseas to Desert Storm. You were sworn into the Orlando Police Department in 1982. <laughs> That's 92. when the, not, 92. That's when the pages were still in effect, right? He was assigned a midnight patrol, worked stints on the bike squad gang unit before moving to a multi-agency undercover drug task force named Metropolitan Bureau of Investigations. Raul was a field training officer, developed an interest in investigations and SWAT, spent 12 years in robbery with uh, cross-sworn duties with the FBI Safe Street and ATF Violent Crimes Task Force. At the same time, Raul was an assault team member on the SWAT team. Raul moved to the Fugitive Investigations Unit and was cross-sworn with the U.S. Marshals. Raul has received numerous awards, accolades to include the Award of Valor, Field Training Officer of the Year, SWAT Operator of the Year, and Florida Governor's Award. You currently sit on the SWAT Roundup International Committee, and you are 18 years with the SWAT team, served as an assistant team leader, was one of the SWAT team members involved during the Pulse nightclub incident shooting in Orlando, Florida. You received an award for valor for your actions and involvement in the Pulse incident, and you are currently retired in 2019 after a 20-year career. I made it, man. I made man, it. Man, I need to breathe. Years, oh, was yeah, it 26 yeah. years? 26 years. 26 years. Yeah, 92 man. to 2019. Yeah, man. So. Let me just yeah. ask this question, man. What did you give up in that 26 years? You know, I'm, I'm divorced. I mean, isn't that like a, one of the criteria? I tell, I tell you what, that's, that's where it's just, uh, uh, you know, completely my fault, you know. Uh, but yeah, divorced, uh, definitely gave up some time with my son, you know, that I'm trying to make up now. He's 19, he's down in college, you know, and we're tight now. And we were tight then, you know, just I feel like I missed some things, you know, with that. Uh, gave up time with the family as a whole. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, I'm sorry, man. Can I curse? I, I'm not going to be able to stop you. <laughs> it just, it may slip out, man. I, I apologize. But yeah, no, I mean, what I give up, I think I give up everything. You know, all of us that truly do the job. I mean, you know, we give up a, a piece of ourselves. Uh, if you're doing the job right, I think, I think that's part of it. So, yeah. Yeah, because we're human, man. So yeah. what did you, uh, you went from the military. Yeah. Why the police department? You know, it, it's, so when I was in college, I was taking business. Uh, Should have stayed there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, you think I would have went that way, but man, I was I was uh literally talking to some friends, and I'm like, man, that sounds cool. That sounds pretty cool. And I've always been one, and, and I think it's part of my nature. And this is this is where they kind of say maybe it's a calling, and I, I don't know, I don't know that everybody's called to it, but. I think maybe I was because I, I was always that guy in, in middle school and in high school and in college. I was always that guy looking to help, trying to do the right. I messed up more than anybody, but trying to do the right thing, 
trying to help somebody. I was reminded of this uh, not too long ago. We had a, a special ed uh, deal when I was in high school where uh, they were they were integrated into the normal classes. And apparently I was one of the only people uh, in those classes that took the went the extra mile to try to make sure them, that they were comfortable and were doing what we were doing. I just that's always been part of my nature. So then when the when the talking about being a cop and how fun I was like, and that kind of sounds like me. I, you know, I want to help. And I just, once I got hold of that idea, I, you know, no regrets, no regrets. How immediate or how soon was it that you realized I did not want to be on the patrol very long? I want to go to a special unit. It was, so I was having fun on patrol though. So Orlando, like every city has a good part and a bad part, if you will, you know, so they kind of put me in the more active parts of the city, you know, and uh, I was digging it. I had some really good people around me and they were, you know, go-getters. So I was kind of watching that and learning it the right way. So I was doing good there. And just lucky, man, that OPD was at, at, at a growth spurt. Orlando Police Department was at a growth spurt when I yeah. got there. So they started to do this new fancy bike thing, you know, the bike, like, the hell's that, you know? So, but, you know, we got to put on the tight shorts and the tight shirts, you know, and, uh, and ride cool bikes down in the hood, man. And it was, they were like, we need some young go-getters. I'm telling you, that was one of the best gigs I did. Oh, man, it was awesome. It was either fight or flight, because these dudes are not expecting a cop to be on a bicycle. You come right. up, you can be stealth and quiet. Oh, uh, man. It was it was awesome. It was it was an awesome, awesome time. Uh, and like you just said, man, we were able to just ride up on things that we wouldn't normally be doing, you know, with our crown Vicks coming around the corner with that engine, you know, revving so loud. So, yeah, we were, you know, riding between houses, you know, and because down there, you know, it's a very, uh, in, in the Paramore part of town. So it's an old section of town. And uh, patrolling that, we were able to ride between houses, you know, and, uh, go from one street to the next street by and, and just be able to set things up. And it, it was really, really fun. And, and we made a difference. I mean, we did a lot of good and when we were doing that. So it was pretty cool. So yeah, that just, actually uh, started in Seattle. You know that, right? Yes, I do know that. Yeah. They actually our first bike guys that preceded us went all the way over there to get to go through a bike school to kind of learn and get gets it to the search to bring it back to us so we could learn how to ride the bike because it's not your uh rolling around the park type uh bike ride, not a boot know? beach cruiser man it's not you got to learn how to ride that bike and ride it right so it, it's definitely uh you got to learn how to how to be in a pursuit on a bike how to dismount a bike how to use yeah. the bike in a fight oh man it was what a course that was i mean it was just an eye-opening experience and I had a great time on that bike squad. So you know, uh, but you, you said something really important, man. You said you learned from these these OG police officers, right? You know, and, and looking back now, as many good habits as we learned, we probably learned some bad habits too. You know, and one of them is probably not reaching out for help because those guys were those guys were steel, man. Yeah, I tell you, I, I uh, and it's so funny, right? So when I came on my first year on, the guy that was my corporal on my squad was in his 25th year, just a warrior. I mean, and the stories that he told us. And man, I I, I never, ever, it never even entered my mind to think about, hey, did you ever go to EAP? Did you ever, it just was not part of the vocabulary. It really wasn't. I didn't, I don't know that I knew what EAP was. I'm sure they mentioned it to us in the academy. I'm sure they told me, you know, in orientation. I really don't know that I know what EAP was well into my 10th, 15th year, somewhere, you know, years had gone by before I really knew the hell that was. Yeah. Cause you know, people talk about breaking the stigma or, you know, education. And you know, a lot of that 
stems from the education we got from those older yeah. officers, man. They, they've seen everything and like it you just watch up. them. Yeah. Oh, you're good. Okay. I'm good. Cause you're, you're, you're not being that guy. Hey man, you know what? I'm, uh, I'm struggling. Right. No. You can't be trusted. Yeah. And, you know, back then, man, it was big about going to choir practice. You know, I mean, and that that was and for those that may not know what that means, you know, going going to the bar, you know, and uh, and throwing back a few. That was pretty much a counseling session. You know, that was accepted. That's what it was. That was after shift. Everybody to get together. Yeah. 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 And you would take a couple hours. You'd talk about it and, and laugh. And humor was a big thing. It was huge. Yeah. Humor was huge. And it was just you talk about it. You find the humor in it. Throw another drink back. You know, talk about something else. You know, you know, cops are great for telling stories, you know, so we'll tell all the stories and, and take a couple of drinks and find the humor. But And that's the way we dealt with it. And, and hell, it's the way we still deal with things. You know, people are always, I don't want to say critical, but just weirded out by how we can be sitting next to a dead body and find some humor. Yeah. But man, is that not the coping mechanism that we use? I mean, that, we find humor and stuff. And that's, yeah, that's, that's what humor. we were taught. So it was, it's a right. learned behavior for sure. Yes, you went through it all. In your 18 years as a SWAT team member, I mean, I'm absolutely positive that you saw, I mean, death. And I understand that PTSD probably became a real element in your life. What I like to do, man, if you don't mind, I'd like to move to that pulse shooting. Just because I think we can wrap up a lot of what I want to get across is I want I want to talk to officers out there. I want to talk to men who are actually in the battlefield that they can understand that it's real life situation. So I'd love you just to kind of share that. I know that you were awarded the valor the award of valor for your actions in that. I believe there was nine shooters, but I'm going to let you set the tone, man. If you would like to set the scenario and share it. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I give a presentation about this, a tactical one, as well as my, my journey. I tell you what, man, uh, and, and not trying to be overly religious or anything, but I think the, uh, I, and I, I call the SWAT gods, you know, I think the SWAT gods kind of sharpened us a little bit for the Pulse nightclub shooting. What I mean by that is uh, we had two hostage situations that happened within 36 hours of the false nightclub shoot. Uh, real deal, you know, one where a man had taken these kids hostage and one where this guy was in a, uh, I think he did in a robbery, vehicle pursuit, crashed into a condo and took this uh, these two guys hostage. And that last one happened that late afternoon before Pulse. So, you know, tell you a funny story that that ended up being me and a couple of guys with this guy after we gassed the place. He's he's in the bathroom hiding this guy. We threw a bunch of gas in this in this condo, didn't sneeze, didn't clear his throat, just sat there and took it, ate it like chiclets and stood in the bathroom and waited for us. You know, so meanwhile, this, you know, I'm going in there. My neck is on fire. That stuff was hot, man. And uh, we go up to uh, to the bathroom and it ends up being three of us and it's smoking in there because, you know, all the gas is tight. And we end up having to fight this guy in the bathroom. And the bathroom was was small in a closet. And we're going at this guy, you know, trying to trying to just get him under control. He's trying to bite us. He's grabbing at our guns. I mean, it's, it's a knockdown drag out. We find to get control of them we come out so me at that point i had uh 15 14 years on already at that you know so i'm still I'm one of the elder guys in the team so i'm i'm coming out because it was me and two other guys in that bathroom we're going at them you know so when i'm coming out i feel myself you know what 
I need to step away. I can feel this coming in. You know, I'm about to pass out. I'm done. We had the gas mask on the whole time. I'm thinking I'm done. I've got to get to my car because I'd, I'd be damned if anybody see me pass out. It's not going to happen. <laughs> you know. So, uh, And I remember coming around the corner and seeing another guy that was in there fighting with me. He's sitting on a, on a couch on the, you know, he's just, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm not the only one just, just about to die here. So um, I remember when I got to my car and I, and I was okay, I was able to kind of compose myself. But uh, I say all that to say, you know, we just went through that. I left there and went to a family function, got home and barely put my left ass cheek on the bed and the damn phone goes off. Then, you know, active shooter, I'm popping up like, you gotta be you gotta be kidding me. You gotta be kidding me. But we always know, we always say that, you know, whenever the first call out happens, two more are coming behind it, right? Mm. So we always think it happens in threes. Uh, my first thought, it's an active shooter. You know, I'm gonna be, they'll cancel this here in about, what, five minutes? That was my first thought. This is gonna be over in five minutes. This is June 12th, right? 2000, what? Um, 2016? 2016. Yes, sir. It was pretty early morning. It was at two in the morning. That's what I'm saying. I, I Literal translation was, I got home maybe an hour. I, I mean, I hadn't really got to sleep yet. And the damn phone's going off. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. You know, so, and again, but I'm thinking active shooter. What's that? That's going to be five minutes, you know, because what's an active shooter going on? Right, because before this, there there hadn't been, how many active shooters did you have in Orlando before this? We had one that I know of. In your career. That. In my career. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't an active shooter like this. It was a little bit of a different circumstance, but yeah. So when you hear the call, when you find out a little bit about it, what was your initial, what did you hear initially? Well, and, and that's the thing. So when I'm trying to put my clothes on, I'm, I, I kept thinking in my mind, this is going to be canceled any minute now. I finally get in my car, turn the radio on, and people are still kind of amped up, still kind of getting it. And they're still working whatever's going on. And then, you know, I go to SWAT channel and they're saying, meet at this intersection right here. I'm like, okay, this is still going on. I mean, what? And I don't know. I don't, I can't remember if it's actually said Pulse nightclub, but I remember thinking like, I know that place, but I don't know that place. I mean, I never, you know, it's a gay nightclub. So and I just don't ever recall ever being an issue there. So uh, now let me preface yes. it for the people that are listening. The SWAT guys are kind of like they're the prima donnas. OK, like it takes them a little bit of time to get on a scene. Right. Especially their home one o'clock at night. They don't think it's important. Us patrol guys are sitting there. And no, I'm just kidding. But it takes a long time. People yeah. don't understand. But to get all the components of a SWAT team together, because you have not everybody's an entry guy. Not everybody's a sniper. Right. Not everybody's a spotter. So you have all these intricate details that, that take a little bit of time to, to come together as a team. For sure. And so we have 40 guys. And just like you said, and we're coming from all over outside the city, you know, 30, 45 minutes away. Uh, we know now we all have our own vehicles, or all of our equipment's with us. So we go straight to the scene. But yeah, I'm 30 minutes away. And two you know, o'clock in the morning, we're At waking up. Morning. Yeah, we're waking up. So, uh, but the call came in uh, at two. It was like two fifteen or something. And I was there by quarter to three. So, you know, we're 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 getting there. You know, the, uh, the our thought process. I think everybody's thought process that I've spoken to is like this is gonna end before we get there. And then the the shock that we. I remember. So it got quiet as I'm driving there, not hearing anything. People moving around, but nothing. You know. Hey, I'm going here and doing this, but not, not a whole lot of, you know, real important stuff on, on the SWAT channel. So I'm like, OK, I don't. It was weird. It was because you're getting information that. relayed from a patrol officer yeah. to dispatch to you guys. So it does take a little bit of time. Absolutely. And uh, so from a SWAT perspective, 
patrol's doing something and SWAT's doing something, right? So I'm getting more, to, by the time I get in the car and I'm getting there, I'm getting more SWAT side of it. And I'm, I'm hearing them all kind of getting together and they're kind of, uh, we call it self-deploying. They're kind of self-deploying a little bit, but it's not a lot. What I mean by that is I don't, I don't hear that the, the, you never hardly hear it. I don't hear a lot of active bad stuff going on. That that's a way to say it. You know, I, I didn't hear the hectic, you know, or, or any kind of shooting right now. I didn't hear any of that. So I'm like, okay, you know, I, I, so that was confusing to me, kind of getting there and driving there. So you guys get together down mm-hmm. the street, yeah, put together a team. And so when do you start getting information that there's an active shooter inside? So this is the thing is that I have to back up a little bit. When the active shooter started, uh, Adam Gruler, you know, one of the heroes of this whole thing, um, he was actually working outside. So, you know, in Orlando, we can, we call it off duty. People call it moonlight and that kind of thing. So you you can kind of do security for the club in uniform. And uh, he was one of the guys there at the club. He was the guy there at the club. He was one guy. And of course, he didn't see the guy. The guy didn't see him. So when he goes in, because Adam was actually uh, working something on the side of the club outside by by the street. And uh, so Adam didn't see him, of course, like I said. And so this guy goes in, starts shooting. Adam has his handgun. And Adam's pretty tactical dude. He knows this guy's got a long gun. So Adam is trying to get angles from outside, shooting in through the doorways to try to put a stop to him. So you can, you know, got Adam on video running from door to door, trying to get angles as he sees the guy walking in and out. But he knows I'm out, I'm out gunned here. I'm yeah, this gunned. guy's got a rifle. Yeah, he's got a rifle. You know, so, uh, so other officers are showing up, getting there. Uh, Lieutenant Smith is a, is a huge player in this all this whole thing. He's a deputy team commander, SWAT team. He shows up, and, and he's the one to kind of really push the action on the shooter by making the entry. You know, he got some people with some rifles, you know, and they all kind of, you know, he's that warrior we talk about that'll bring everybody back. He's that one. He's that one. So he pushed the action, uh, started going in and driving. But now, again, uh, no shots fired. They get in the initial shots that happen. He, he, he shoots a lot of people and he gets quiet. But Scott goes in with a team of guys. It's quiet. He's looking around. Now, again, I want to go back to it. It's a gay nightclub that none of us have been in. And so don't know the layout of the place. So they kind of come to an entrance there and it's you can go left or right. Then they hear two or three shots. So they go towards where they think the shots are coming from. Then it gets quiet again. And now he's looking at a black wall. Uh, interior of the club is all painted black. It's got mirrors on it. And, you know, the, the whole disco ball and that kind of stuff. He can't tell where it's coming from. Man, that is stressful, bro. And, and you can hear Ooh. him. I, I got him on video just, you know, just saying to himself, where the F is this coming from? Because you can hear some people kind of moaning and groaning and, and, and some still screaming, just, you know, real lightly. They don't know where it's coming from. That was the when they heard those shots when they were at the entrance was the last shots that were fired until the very end of the incident. They're so it, inside. They went in as a team. They had to make a decision. They went to the right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Now the tactics kind of change because again, there's no shots. He's not sure which way to go. We got people screaming there. He doesn't know which room to go in. He's of course waiting for some more people to come and kind of figure out the next move is. And I'm gonna try to illustrate it here. But as he's looking at this wall back here to the left here, my my left, I guess would be your right. He has a bathroom uh, almost directly in front of him. He's got a long hallway that leads to a north and south bathroom, opposing doors, all right? Further down the wall here, 
He's got a door that has one of those uh, punch key combination locks on it. And then it's like a hallway that goes straight down that way. So that's what he's looking at. And so he makes sure that that bathroom has has to be cleared right away because it, the, the angle's bad. And and swap, so we think about his angles and making sure. That, so he, and that biggest angle, threat. Yeah, so that, that angle's bad. That has to be cleared right now. So, But that hallway is like a death tunnel. That hallway that he's looking at almost directly in front of him is like a death tunnel. He's got the door that he can see right here at the combination lock. Can't get into that. He's got another hallway there. So he starts sending people kind of that way to clear that hallway directly to his right. So how many um, team members does he have inside with him right now? That moment, and I'm guessing here, he probably had 10 people with him. But those are, these are just regular patrol guys. Yeah. A couple of guys that, that happen to be on SWAT, but regular patrol guys. Again, I'll say this, you know, Tom Blue in the face. Uh, they were following that warrior. They were waiting for that one to kind of lead them into battle. Yeah, and he yeah. was that guy, you know. So uh, And so now uh, it turns from an active shooter to a barricaded gun. And I'm going to fast forward for sake of time. But he makes contact. We make contact with him. I say we, the police department and the negotiators, make contact with him on the phone. So it's absolutely a barricaded gunman now, hostage situation that turns into. And I mean, he's just, this guy is just as nutty as they come. I mean, just the whole uh, pledging his allegiance, you know, and, and yada, yada, you know, with the whole Middle Eastern stuff. And uh, and, and I'm not making light of anything, but he, he pledged allegiance to ISIS and that kind of stuff. And uh, so he he was of that mindset. There was communication being had. So absolutely it turned into a barricaded gunman, a hostage situation. So that's what changed attack. SWAT starting to show up. We're getting there now. I'll tell you, man, the uh, Captain Canty, at the time he was a captain, now he's the undersheriff for the sister agency. And kudos to that guy. He, there are some decisions that he made uh, during this incident that just exemplify what leadership should be. So each man that showed up grabbed the next man that showed up and took him inside so you can get a look and make sure that you, you get locked the hell on because on that dance floor was nothing but dead bodies. If ever would get you in the right mindset. That was it. And, and one of the, uh, and you know, so we talk about PTSD a lot, you know, of course what we do, that's one of the triggers that a, a few of us have is uh, when we walked in there, uh, the cell phones, damn near every one of them was ringing. And you know, with that damn, uh, with the iPhones, especially when they ring that, that flashlight kind of, and, and of course the lights from the front of the phones, but the, it was lighting up that dance floor. And that just, Immediately, I was thinking that that's somebody's dad calling, somebody's mom, somebody's sister. Because at this point, already was national news because they were all over social media right when it was happening. And we're not talking two or three. We're talking. We're talking 40, 50. Yeah. yeah. yeah you know, because phones were dropped. People that were injured, you know, it was just a bunch of phones in there. And like I said, as incident was going on, it was being broadcasted on social media. I don't know which ones, but yeah, it was already being broadcasted on social media and recorded, you know. So the news of this shooting spread like wildfire amongst the families, never mind, you know, everybody else. So, you know, that's why them phones were ringing like that, because people knew my cousin was at this club. And I just heard from Johnny over here that there's a shooting that's going on in that club. So now I'm going to call, you know whoever it is to see if they're okay. And at that, so those phones, you know, and that's where my mind went. It was a shock to see it. And that very moment, it was a lock, get your head straight, get in the game, you know? Um, and I say that uh, also is that, you know, how many times we've had people say what they're going to do and, and they don't do it. And which is great. People live, right. But this man's already done it. So everything that he said from that point on 
wasn't a doubt in my mind that if he said he was going to do something, he's going to do it. He's already shown that he's capable, shown that he's willing. And proficient at it. And proficient at it. And proficient. And he was good. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's where we were. You know, that's kind of where we were at the the moment. So you guys are inside. Cell phones are going off. It's quiet. It's dark. There's lights everywhere. The lights. SWAT gods. How about? Now, there's mirrors everywhere. Disco ball kind of, you know, the lights kind of with the phone lights going off and everything is kind of reflecting a little bit. But how about the DJ? saw what was happening and had the presence of mind to turn the major stuff off, music off, before he ran. And I say that, I teach, I do some tactical teaching. Can you imagine going into that situation, knowing what we had to deal with, because you got all these dead bodies there, also dealing with the music and the flashing lights coming at you, all that stimulus and trying to lock on to what, you know, the task at hand. We just, SWAT gods looked out for us there. That that DJ had the presence of mind to turn that that major stuff off. I can't imagine. Can't imagine. We got very lucky with that. Yeah. So we're in there, and uh, we're, we're kind of locked on, and there's some stuff that happens, but we we now we kind of realize that, you know what, he's down, down that hallway in one of those bathrooms, and we're feeling, you know, we know he's in one of them bathrooms, and, and, and we've got contact, you know, between uh, people calling 911 still, people calling a family uh, member or a friend, and then that person calling 911 and relaying info to us, but we're getting info uh, that he's in one of the bathrooms. And I've got no doubt in my mind he's waiting for us to come in waiting for us to come in. Now, the bathroom is one of those, uh, I'm going to try to illustrate this for you, but it's one of those switchback walls. So when you open the door, you're looking right at a wall. So you've got to turn and go down like the length of the wall, then make another turn and it goes into the bathroom. So if that makes any sense. So yeah. it's kind of like another funnel, if you will. He, I got no doubt he was waiting for us to come down the funnel and pick us off one by one. So you can't fit two guys in there. When you make that turn into the bathroom there and you walk in along that wall, only one guy can fit there with all our crap on, even without the crap on, you know, so it was just a death funnel, if you will. So I, I believe in my mind that he was waiting for us to come in, you know, so we got guns on that hallway. There's communication between him and, and uh, the negotiators. Uh, the captain says, you know what, save as many people as you can. We still have people in the club. Save everybody you can. That's pretty much going to be the last thing we're going to do is the bathroom he's in, which we now know is a North bathroom. All right. So he just says, he decides, hey, we're going to do an explosive breach because we're not going to go down that hallway to try to get to the South bathroom because, again, we'll be in a horrible situation for everybody. We're going to blow a hole in the back wall into that South bathroom. So get ready for that. Let's get with the bomb, guys. Let's figure that part out. You're yeah, in yeah. a lose-lose situation here, bro. I'm it's seeing hard, the fatal hard. funnel. You can't yeah. go down the hallway because you can't cover. You get to a bathroom where there's a wall, so you can't make a tactical entry in there by, by putting all guns on deck. You know what I mean? So you got to turn yep, your gun. Yep. Then you got to shift around and try to get eyes on the target. You don't know where he's at. He's already shown proficiency with his weapon. Mm-hmm. He's got an automatic rifle, right? So yep. you come through, it's, it's a death sentence. More it casualties, is. right? It is. I want to get to the, to that point, but what was the rescue like? What was trying to get everybody out? Because I haven't spoke to you about during this communication with the negotiators, 
he said he had a, a bomb strapped to him and a bomb outside in the parking lot. And then we get intel that he's strapping bomb vests to some of the hostages. So I just want to throw that last little bit of man. So anybody the out there listening, man, that's a lose lose situation, right? And and whoever had to make those decisions. So when people talk about, hey, we need to defund law enforcement, we need these guys are you know, come on, man. I mean, you're you're handling a lot of information. A lot coming at us at once. You know, with the bomb thing, for lack of a better word, yeah, it changes. The, you know, it's, everything just changes. The dynamics change. Everything changes, you know. So now we're we're uh, we're in the club. Now we're backing out the club. And what I mean by backing out, so now we're trying to take a position from outside the club to cover that hallway that he would have to come out if he comes out. So we're sitting there. We're watching from outside the club. There's a double doors on the side of the club that allowed us to sit just outside of that and watch that hallway. Now we can't see down the hall, we can see anybody coming out of the hallway. So now we get the intel about him strapping bomb vest to hostages and he's gonna send them out. I think he said every 15 minutes, something like that. So captain, and this this never happens. This is one of those things that I, I talk about and I, I'm, I'm skipping a whole bunch of detail, man, bear with me. But uh, in our call outs, the captain never comes out of the ivory tower. You know, and I call the ivory tower the command post, you know, the, yeah, command, yeah. the important spot. That's where they, they move the chess pieces. Right. And, and I'm, I'm a chess piece. So that's that's where they move the chess pieces. And I'm OK with that. I trust my captain knows more than I do about the whole situation. So when he says need to go to this spot and hold that wall, damn it, that's what I'm going to do to best of my ability, because that's that I'm part of this whole team. And the captain knows the whole picture. So when the intel comes about the bomb vest and I'm coming out of 15 minutes, I turn around and the captain's looking me in my eye. It doesn't That doesn't happen during a SWAT call out. You don't see the captain. This day, he's looking me in my eye and he says to all of us that are there, if somebody comes out with that bomb vest on, you got to shoot him. Can't mm. let him out. And it's got to be a headshot. That's real and right there. For him to have the presence of mind to, to, to know to come out, because he had, he had to look you in your eye and make sure you're going to be okay with that because you're shooting an innocent. Again, we're talking about somebody's sister, somebody's brother. A mom, a son, and we had to shoot him in the face. I'm sure there's people listening, like, why? Why why couldn't you shoot him in the in the torso? Why couldn't you know why does it have to be a headshot? Well, you gotta make him stop right there. Kill the computer. You gotta kill the computer. And and we could not let those bombs come out thereby killing everybody outside. We had no idea about what kind of vest they were, what, you know, how much C4 or was it C4? Was it just, you know, we, we had no intel as to what kind of vest, what did we talk? We had nothing. All right. Just so that there were bomb vests. I'm going to ask a question. I'm sure you may have been asked this before, but this is a real question, man. At mm-hmm. what point in time were you scared? So, this is one of the things uh, that I've never in my 18 years, uh, and I've, I've been fortunate, I'm knocking wood right now, I've been fortunate to uh, uh, been exposed to a bunch of uh, SWAT, just warriors around the world, you know, and, and dealing with the SWAT roundup and, and just uh, training around the country. We never talk about our deaths, if you will. That's the first time, and that incident was the first time that us veterans were looking at one another and saying, we're going to die tonight. Tonight we die. But you still went in the building, man. You were still there. Nobody was, nobody was leaving. Nobody was leaving. And, and, and the captain talks about that. And this is one of the reasons I'll, I'll follow him the hell and back. You know, he knows that he could have asked us to leave or ordered us to leave. And nobody was going to walk away. There were still people to be saved. There was still the work needed to be done. And if we could save one more, 
then that's what we put the badge on for. Man, what a tactical mindset, brother. I know we don't talk about being scared, but I'm going to tell you what, there's times in the career where fear's a real thing, man. Yeah. And I, I tell you, man, it was, uh, and this is, this is me. I, I don't speak for anybody, but I've made peace with my maker. Um, I, I've always known that the day could come. So I had to make peace with that early on, uh, knowing if I'm going to be a go-getter, if I'm going to be, uh, you know, that tip of the spear, that my day may come, you know, by by getting speared back, right? So didn't fear in that way, but there this day at Pulse Nightclub was, was the first time I thought about it. So some fear crept in. And, and what I mean by that is that so we all knew a bomb was gonna go off. There was no doubt in anybody's mind that he was going to do it. Nobody doubted that. Nobody doubted, you know, that there was bombs in there. You're getting real-time information from people yeah, in there. Real-time They're watching yes. what he's doing, man. And you're hearing this real-time. You're like, man, I got a choice to make. I can, you know, you hear that face everything and run or, man, or you attack. Like, you're a warrior, man. That's what people, that mindset. I think we, we uh, as, a, as a team, and, and, I, and I, I praise the team uh, to all day. I mean, we, we, have a, we have a saying, uh, hold your brother's blood more precious than your own and you always be victorious. I believe in that. I believe in it with my heart. Um, There's not one guy on the team I wouldn't die for. And I know it's the same. I can say the same for them. Oh, Raul, but people yeah. say that. But people say that. Hey, I'll, I'll die yeah. for you. I'll bleed for you. When you're in it. Yeah. When you're, when you're in it. Man, I'm getting chills talking about this. But when you're in it, man, and you have the decision to make, Man, that's when you're battle tested, brother. You know, I, I guess I've seen the other side of that. You know, yeah. with some other, you know, some other incidents, some other people. But uh, I, I think to a man, and, and, and I don't want to make it sound like it's just a SWAT team either. I tell you what, uh, to a patrol officer, the information got out there, and I, I tell you this: the information was out there about the bombs. And when I turned around, there was a patrol guy standing right there. They didn't run either. You know, so I, I want to make that clear too that there were heroes among us everywhere. And I mean that because, yeah, the easy, simple shit to do is to, to walk away at two blocks mm. from a safe distance. And there were those guys. You know, I'm talking <laughs> about what I saw, right? I know, so, look, no, I'm, I'm with you because, you know, I mean, I've seen the five guys that left, right? So I am completely with you. But I'm telling you, there's, her there's heroes among us. Um, nice. and, and I mean that, you know, and, and uh, we were there uh, and that. Uh, and this is the part that gives me chills is that, again, I never ever, before then or after then, have I had a conversation with another SWAT guy saying we're, we're going to die tonight. And the hairiest of, of hostage rescues and other shootings I've been involved in, we've never had that. And I think, again, I'm going to go back to because of what he already had done, and now we're getting this real-time uh, info and intel now we're just sitting here thinking about when it's going to happen. Man. Not if, not if, but when. When's it going to happen? Can we save? Can we save one more? Can we get into that bathroom? Can we get? You know, is anybody hiding? Is anybody else alive in here? You know, and uh, that was probably uh, when you talk about fear. That that was probably as uh, as one of the time. <laughs> so after everything, well, I'll, I'll let you let me get. There. So how do you how do you get to that bathroom? We blow a hole. So Captain, you know, says, "Hey, just blow a hole back there. Get into that that south bathroom." Uh, but we kind of mess up in that the hole was supposed to be in the south bathroom to get more people out. We know he's in the north bathroom. Damn it, we're off by like five feet and we end up being making a hole between the two bathrooms. So now we're looking, there's a hole right here, door and a door. Now this being like back here being the outside, the back of the, of the club, you know, inside the club would be that way. So again, I talk about the SWAT guys. It was bad because we weren't where we wanted to be in the south bathroom to get the people out. But 
Now I'm looking at the door. SOB now, if you want to come out, I am right here. So good and bad, right? Good and bad. So get a big ass hole here and we're looking at the door. Uh, basically we take, now it's a big explosion. We use it, we use a, you know, shape charge and boom, it, it, there's, there's no more. We're not sneaking around. The gig is up. He knows we're there. All right. So got a bunch of us there. The Bearcat, which is the uh, armored patrol vehicle, comes in behind us and starts knocking with the ram, knocking holes into that south bathroom to start rescuing people. So now we're be- between that hole and this big hole, kind of at an angle with our guns on the, on the door. Uh, and you're pulling people out. People are. Yeah. So we got the guys pulling, pulling people out right there. And uh, as we sit here with the guns, we hear a couple of shots. And to a man, our, our first reaction is to advance, try to get in there, neutralize this. But that hole's big enough for one guy, and it's only if you can put your rifle down, climb up in that damn thing. So Smith is, no, no, you know, stopping us. So we throw flashbangs, throw a flashbang into the big hole, take the bear cat that's over here, move it over here, start smashing holes so we can get a gun in through one of the holes over here. To try to like, you know, maybe we can get a gun on him and shoot him from one of the holes over here. Meanwhile, I'm sitting right here now, when we throw the flashbangs, remember, uh, there's a big ass hole there already. And that concrete right there is fresh. When we throw the flashbang, it just makes that the dust just, just go all over the place. Mm. The big dust cloud right there in that hole. And out comes this figure. All I can see is a black shadow and muzzle flash coming out of two barrels. He's coming out shooting. I'm out shooting like Rambo, doing the whole. Long gun, handgun. I shot the figure until the muzzle flash had stopped. And, uh, you know, he, he got shot. Uh, one of his shots did hit one of our guys. Caught him right in the helmet. God bless him. He's okay. Um, Mike Napolitano, great kid. Only been on team less than a year at the time. And takes one right in the helmet. Takes one in the helmet. And let me tell you about how sexy that guy is. Listen to this shit. This guy... Guy comes out shooting, Mike shoots, takes one in the helmet from his ass. It puts him on his ass, fires back a couple more rounds from his ass, gets up. One Somebody shoots him back behind the, the line, if you will. He does a reload and starts walking back to get some more. That's that John Wayne shit we talk about that people just, mm. that's the real deal. That's what Mike did. And that, that guy, I can't tell you enough about him. God bless him. He's not He's not uh, with OPD anymore. You know, he had some issues as well. Uh, he's, he's doing good now. It, it sent him Ooh, for a ride. Man. So he goes down. We start coming up, moving up, and we go into the hole, and he's there. And uh, I see a battery pack right between his legs. And that's the second time that fear entered my heart because now I'm thinking, yeah, and I'm, I'm looking right at it. It's going to, it's going to happen. I'm, I'm watching it. And, and the, the second thing that hits me is why didn't it go off already? I'm thinking, yep, there's two wires that just disconnecting and just waiting, they're waiting to come together and that that's going to be the boom. So, so now, and of course we call the bomb guy over and he's, you know, he's, Freaking looks at everything and he says, live device. Nobody left. We had to get people that were still alive in the North Bath and we had to get them out. Nobody left. I grabbed the ram, start trying to make that hole bigger that was made already, but we're trying not to use the Bearcat. We just don't know where the bombs are at. So maybe we can be a little more surgical with this damn ram that I'm using. So, and I, I hit it. Somebody else grabbed it. They hit, you know, and a couple guys jump in there and start grabbing victims out until we get the last one out. It's alive. And that's kind of how that whole thing went down. How much yeah. you guys save? Uh, 50, 50 something. I forgot what the number is. I'll tell you, it wasn't, it was more so uh, the hospital. And I mean, what I mean by that is that number of 49 dead would have been a lot more. Them guys, we have a level one trauma center that was literally three blocks away. Mm, they just went to work. 
from what I've heard, I did not go there. From what I heard, it reminded people of an old combat type hospital in a war zone. But man, did they step up. They were working it. And this is one of those hospitals. I don't care where I am in the country. If I get shot, you fly my ass back down. <laughs> Keep you alive, man. man. It's one of those type hospitals, you know. Don't, don't go there with a broken leg because you'll sit there for five hours. Yeah. <laughs> and it's Tylenol. So, but yeah. When it comes to Man. that level one trauma, they, they are just beast. I mean, I can't tell you enough. So they're the heroes as far as, you know, keeping people alive and saving people. It's ORMC. I can't tell you enough. They're great, great, great. Well, Raul, I know, I know that wasn't easy to talk about. I know I know it gets easier and, and, and it's yep. kind of a therapy session as we talk yes, about yes, it. Sir. Yeah. But people understand, like, there's heroes all over the place, man, with what you guys went through. But the issue comes after. When you're in it, you're, you're reactionary, your training takes over, that, man, that it factor takes over because that's how you're trained, right? Yeah. But then what happened? Like, that's what I want to know is, like, that's probably, that's the biggest event you're ever going to have to go through, hopefully. You know, uh, for us, man, we, uh, we did the EAP thing. They sent us the EAP uh, it just, and I told you before, Brock, it, it just, it just sucked, you know, go there and, and it's, it's a trained, of course, clinician, but they're not maybe trauma trained clinicians. Um, Talk about what EAP stands for, just so everybody can understand. Uh, employee assistance program. Am I saying that right? So basically <laughs> before you come back to work, you have to be medically, mentally, physically cleared by right. an individual yeah. that's never been in combat. You, you said it exactly right. So you got to go, you know, get cleared by this person and they got to say that you're mentally, you know, uh, okay, if you will, if that's the right word to use. The problem that for a, a few of us, more than a few of us, was that when we got in there, the clinician's mind was made up, hey, you can't have seen that and not be messed up. And I, I'm thinking you need to talk to me first to kind of make a decision like that. Ask a question. Like, yeah. yeah. Ask, ask a few questions, you know, and for me, I, I know you're not going to get me to talk a whole lot. I'm going to cooperate, but I'm not going to tell you a whole lot. I'm just, cause your mind's made up. What, what am I going to say to you? So, and that's kind of the experience I had at first. Uh, so you're, you're in there, man. You're doing this because you have to you just get cleared to come back to work. So we talk about being culturally competent. For us, this is why we don't go. This is why we don't go to EAP. This is why the veterans of 21 years taught us not to talk to people. You know, I tell the story. When I went to my shooting, I sat down with the guy and he had never been punched in the face. Like I looked at him I'm like, man, this guy's never done anything in his life wrong. And so how is this guy going to clear me for battle? How is he going to let me get back? And, and that's why p- police officers and firefighters are so scared to talk because they hold your future. They do. And so you end up going there and telling him what he wants to hear, what he or she wants to hear, as opposed to what may be going on in your head. Because you know, now you just think I gotta get back to work. Let me get away from you and get back to work. And and that becomes that that was my sentiment. So now it's you know, I'm kind of giving you the lip service. You know, I'm not gonna not cooperate and then get uh benched, you know, so to speak. So I'm gonna cooperate with you. How you but, feeling? Good. But you're in a bad situation because <laughs> that did affect you. Right? You it can't did. walk away from that without having any effect. Right. But I need to talk about it. Right. Right. So I tell you the thing that I, I'm not smart the clinician or like that but you know you're going to probably get a whole lot more from all of us if you just talk to us and the cultural competency comes in where if i say fatal funnel you understand 
understand what that means. Those type of things, that's what's big. So if I have to, if every third sense I have to explain a term I just used, that's tiring, man. I don't, I don't get to get my, my rhythm going up. What's in my heart, what's in my head. So that's the confidence part of it. You can't prejudge, but you know, you, you can't. You can't, you know, that, that was my big thing is that you're prejudging based on it being horrible. I've seen some horrible shit in my time. You know, while that may have affected me, this means I might got to get some stuff off my chest. It did affect me, you know, uh, uh, but that wasn't my story is that uh, while that affected me, some portions of it affected me. And it, it's just horrible it's to see dead bodies on the ground and then the phones ringing and the, and the lights going off. Our actions, my actions, no problem. Spot on. Spot on with that. That is black and white to me. So I've got no problems with that, I think was kind of an issue for the therapist. It's no problem with me. So that those are the things that, you know, kind of messed it up in the beginning. And, and are you going to go any further with the what way the next? Go ahead. Oh, so we kind of came back and told, you know, hey, this this is kind of messed up. You know, it's, it's not what I thought it was hoping it was going to be. And, that, you know, kudos to the command staff said, well, no, let's find a place. And uh, steered us towards a place called UCF Restores. Man, they, they were great. You could you could talk to them and they, they would talk to us. You know, and uh, but at that point for me, I was I was kind of done with it. I'm good. And uh, you were kind of leery, man. Like I was leery. Because if was two leery. people says you're crazy, you may be crazy. Oh, I know. And that's another thing is that the first EAP, me giving and cooperating with them and kind of giving the one word answers and, and just kind of not being an asshole, if you will, to them. They said I was good. It was weird because you came in telling me I wasn't good. But at the end of it, you told me I was. I think I snowed you. I, I anyway. So we go to UCF for stores and I'm again, I'm leery now and I'm kind of like, you know what? I'm good. I don't, I don't need, I'm thinking to myself, I don't need this. I'm good. You know, I feel good. So I thought, you know, I just want to go back to work. Let me go back to work. So that was kind of my thought process there. And then uh, literally it was six months later, we had a uh, Lieutenant Deborah Clayton shot and killed. We were looking for a homicide guy. Uh, she runs into him out, out front of a, a Walmart and she did the right thing. She called for backup, but he walked out right when she was calling for backup. Uh, they get into a gunfight. She gets shot in the hip, gets put down. And he walks up on her and, and executes her. We're charged with, I was with the uh, Marshall's task force at the time. Uh, we're charged with finding her killer. And there was a, a 10, 11 day manhunt for this guy. But in the middle of that, there was a viewing memorial type deal for her. And uh, my squad and the task force show up. And, you know, everybody knows this. We're easily identifiable because we're in jeans and, you know, short sleeve shirts with the tag vest on, you know. And uh, everybody knows that we're the guys looking for this guy. And uh, everybody, you know, uh, felt like everybody was coming up to, to us and, you know, have you found them yet? You got any new leads? Can we do anything? What are you doing? You know, just asking all those questions. And there's nothing wrong with that. It, it all came out of love. I believe that in my heart, but pressure of it, I, you know, it's weird, but the pressure of that, I felt like an anvil was on my chest. I just, I, just, I, I couldn't breathe. I had to get out of the church. I remember, you know, having to go to my car and just kind of have my moment that just, and it just didn't go away. You know, fast forward to when we finally got him, uh, you know, hiding out in a little shanty of a house in the hood. After we got him, I just thought I was going to explode. I could, I could feel it. You know, and, and again, I had another moment. And then fast forward, you know, I'm thinking I'm I'm good. Fast forward a couple of weeks, th three weeks, and uh, me and my dad, you know, get into it. And uh, I, you know, I put my hands on my dad, and he put his hands on me. And, and like men, you know, we're not talking about father son type thing. It was, and that's just not me. And and it was one of my 
and my dad grabbed me, and, and, who's a Vietnam veteran, PTSD himself, or things that he went through. And he's a 100% disabled veteran. He's been that way because of this shit going on in his head. Um, for him to put hands on me and, and just what's wrong, son, you know, you need, you know, you need to get some help. That was like a mental breakdown for me. And that, that's where I knew I had to go do something because, you know, because of what just happened between me and my dad. So, and that leads me back to going to UCF Restores, which became, uh, you know, I became aware of because of what happened at Pulse. So, uh, and, and they were able to help me. And in the midst of that, going to that therapy, I kind of found out that, man, my trash can had been full for a while. <laughs> I was, I hadn't emptied it. My trash can was stinking for a long while. You know, uh, I had sour milk and chicken and eggs and all kinds of shit in there. And just, I just hadn't emptied it. And, uh, you know, besides finding out, of course, I was telling you, you know, there's no secret, you know, I had a, a kind of a crazy, you know, upbringing as a child, some stupid shit happened to me. We kind of identified where I really, really was just overflowing. My trash cans overflowing was uh, about a year and a half prior to that driving home from work three o'clock in the morning or whatever time it was as a uniform, I think working an off-duty job. And uh, there's a wreck that happens, maybe four ca- four cars in front of me, just kind of traffic just stops. I'm kind of looking and I can see that, you know, where it stops. I get out and go down and begin. I'm in uniform and uh, there's a little girl there. Uh, she's in the back seat and uh, she's doing that agonal breathing, you know, and uh, I pull her out, you know, and uh, well, actually I, I Keep her there for a minute because she's breathing and she's got a pulse, you know, but then that goes away. Uh, pull her out, start doing CPR on her, you know, get get a somewhat of a pulse. She breathes for a second and then I just, she just breathes her last breath on me and I just felt her just go away in my arms. That just, I, I never dealt with that. And I remember, well, I never dealt with it, but this is the first time ever in my career that I'd ever told my mom or call my I call my mom at five in the morning and she had about five in the morning and asked her to pray for this little girl. I've been around death and I've been around a bunch of crazy shit in my career. Never, ever have I told my mom anything other than funny stories about my time at the police department. It's the first time I, I called my mom that to in that way as a grown man. And uh then I never dealt with it. That was that was the last time I spoke of it. Never spoke of it again until I got into therapy. My, that's my journey, man. Man, that's deep. I guess, man, with all of that, how'd you overcome it, man? How did you get through or may, we never really overcome it, but how did you get through it? What do you what are you doing today to be a light, man? Because I know your podcast and you're sharing your story, which that's how I met you, man. I loved you guys. I love what you're doing, but still it's every day. Yeah, you know, man, uh, so and it's a, it's a funny journey, man. We got of course, you know, Pulse being as big as it was around the country and the news that it made around the world, we were getting tasked to go give Pulse presentations, tactical presentations to, to different organizations, you know, and then, uh, and then we would give uh, just kind of not so much tactical, but just, hey, this is what happened at Pulse presentation. And I found that to be therapeutic for me, just talking about it. Sometimes it was tough, man. I get certain points of it and I had to stop, kind of compose, hold the tear back. You know, because it takes me back sometimes when I think about it, you know, and I'm better now. I'm much better now than I was when we first doing it. But yeah, it, it would take me back and I would get kind of, I get choked up a little bit. And then, uh, man, I, I, I'm i doing a presentation one day and uh, Doug Monda is in the audience. And uh, he's he's the founder of Survive First and Trauma Behind the Badge. And uh, after I finish, uh, you know, he approaches me and, and basically tells me, hey, man, I'm digging what you're putting down, you know, and uh we need to talk. And, you know, the rest is history. Them guys took me under their wing and uh, I'm with Survive First Now, which is an organization that just basically, and it just the way Doug puts it, uh, their organization that uh, 
takes a no out of uh, first responders getting help, you know, and, and that they just do anything to kind of make sure that a first responder can receive the, the help that they need. Uh, and then we got hooked up with trauma behind the badge, which, which is just a, you know, we're just four guys trying to make sure we make a difference, man. And, uh, and we, and we do that a zoom call every, uh, every Tuesday at seven o'clock, man. And that, that has just been, I'm, I'm humbled by, by being around those three guys, man. And, and just what I've learned in the last year, man, and the way we've been able to help, man. I mean, I, and, and I can, I've been able to put my finger on it and say, man, I really, really helping people between those two things and my family, man, I, I am lucky and I know it, you know, I got some good people around me, man. I get <laughs> okay. it, man. I get it. I mean, you, you don't put that much time and devote that much to something without having passion, yes, sir. you know, and I see it, man. I, and I, I had a chance to be on trauma behind the badge with you and, and, uh, man, that was just what, what a cool experience. Chris from yeah, Oklahoma yeah. city bombing. You, you guys are doing it right, man. You really Thank are. You. And, and I hope there's people out there that are hearing this and sharing this and, and they're probably blown away. They're probably having to go take a nap right now after hearing <laughs> this. It is a huge story. And I say that because I literally, when I when I do the presentations, the tactical and just my journey, it's a two-hour deal, man. And I can just talk about it because there's so much detail that happened behind the scenes that people just don't know. It's just so important to what how things kind of got maneuvered, man. So it's an amazing story. Yeah, it's an amazing story. But tactically, there was no benefit to you guys at all no. at any corner other than the doors were unlocked. Yeah, yeah, that's you know, and, and and the the DJ turn the turn the lights and music down. Other <laughs> yeah. than that, the corners nothing. I mean, nothing was advantageous. It was, it, it was. Yeah. It, and, and we talk about that. Um, I, you know, I, I teach that, and I even tell people, you know, hey, we one of the lessons we learned from that is that we got to ramp up our training. We're not doing enough realistic training. Not just training, because, you know, everybody does done active shooter stuff and we've done hostage rescues and barricaded gunmen and that kind of thing. But we've got to try to ramp it up more realistic. Let's be more creative and trying to find a way to put that officer in a situation so they don't shit when the first time it happens. That oh, We call it an oh shit plan. Because yep. I can yep. tell you in not one situation that you guys went into and probably most officers can relate. It's never perfect. You're always having to overcome a major obstacle, yeah. you know, something, the door, the door opens the wrong way, yeah. you know, yeah. you can't get the electricity out. I mean, there's always something. So my question is this, man, like I, I know, I understand tactically we need to do better. Always. You can always train, but what can we do more for the first responders that are going through it? How can we be a bigger presence in their lives. You know, the first thing uh, I always say to people is, and I think I said it to you when, when we were trying behind the badge, is that I put it on, on, on ourselves first. And what I mean by that, the reason I say that is because every officer out there, every one of you, you will go to DT, uh, defensive tactics, you learn how to fight, you go to firearms and you learn how to shoot, you know, you, you go to report writing school and you learn how to write reports, you learn how to do traffic accidents, you learn how to do all this stuff, but we don't learn how to take care of ourselves mentally. Mm. And as relentless, and I say this to every one of these cops out here, because I believe in my heart that we've got way more good cops than we'll ever have bad. And I know that if I am in need of 
if, if somebody is kicking my ass right now, I'm on duty and somebody's kicking my ass, I believe that every cop in this country will come running to, to throw themselves in the fight and, and, and we take care of the situation. 100, I agree. Why can we not be as relentless with our mental health? If we're that relentless with the physical stuff, why can't? Because we keep saying that a mental injury is like having a broken leg, isn't it? Right. So then why are we not treating it? The same. I'm talking about everybody within yourselves. You got to be relentless in doing it, and that, and that that comes in many different ways. Now that means if you decide at some point that you need help and you talk to the the quack, don't give up, man. Yeah, go find somebody else. Go find the next one. That's and that's the first one. That that's the first thing I always think about, man. Is that we have got to be as relentless, as relentless as we are physically. We got to be relentless mentally, and. I should be able to come to Brock and say, because not, not just us, but I should be able to look out for my brother as well. Say, Brock, you okay? And you better not just tell me I'm fine. Cause I ain't taking it. Tell me something good. Tell me something bad. And I got, I still have from Chris Scallon and Fields, but that is so on the money. Tell me something good. Just saying I'm fine. That's all we ever say. I'm good. It is. I'm all right. Good. good. Fine. Okay. Need more than that. You Man. know, so we've got to look out for ourselves relentlessly gotta look out for each other relentlessly if we can do those two things man we're gonna be all right we're gonna be all right and then uh you know behind that is we got to make sure that resources for these guys that you know to find they've got to know where to at their fingertips they can go somewhere you know and that damn phone i mean you know these smartphones now it, it, it should be nothing to kind of be able to she able to tap some shit up and, and have a phone number there and, you know, knows how to talk to talk, you know, and, and get us through some stuff. Man, I, I am blessed by meeting guys from behind the badge and talking to some of their counselors, Denise, who talk about tell it how it is and let you know what you need to hear. I'm telling you right now, ain't too many men in this country going to call me an addict, but she has. You know, she says I'm, I'm an, an adrenaline addict. I ain't taking that from too many people, but she can see because she knows how to do it. She's trained at that shit. And that's at, that's at our fingertips. We have those resources now, guys. Reach out, you know, chase the vase, trauma behind the bash, survive first. Uh, there's, there's so many different organizations. Reach out. It's there for you. And I'll tell you this, that trauma behind the badge, and I'm pretty sure it's the same for you, Brock, is that I'm not going to put a resource out there or, or tout a resource that we haven't vetted. Yeah. So, and we know that it's, it's not about the money. It's about doing the right thing. It's about trying to help the first responder, trying to help our brothers and sisters. So, and if we can't say that, if I can't say that, my name won't be on it. I appreciate that, man. That's big. I felt like this was an amazing therapy session for me. Yes, sir, it was. Yes, you know what I mean? Was. I feel, <laughs> man, I feel good now. Seriously, man. I am, I'm so sure, honored man. to know you. I'm so blessed. Uh, you know, I'm thankful that you went through that. That you can talk about it and share that yes. wisdom and knowledge with people. You know, that you're a guy that you can come out and train people. Because that's yes, what sir. it's about, man. I want to learn from people like you. The new generation of people where we can talk about it and share. Yes, absolutely, man. Anytime, guys. I mean, you know, anytime. Man, it's been a pleasure being on the show with you. I can't tell you. And Brock, I think we hit it up the first time I met you, man. So anytime, brother, you want to talk, man, I, I am here. Uh, when I get over to your neck of the woods, brother, we're going to we're gonna have one. So be ready. Oh, so hey, sure, man. I, I've stopped everything, man. I don't even drink soda anymore. I Man, I'm trying to get away from the sweet drinks, man. I've, I've, been, I've been trying so hard, but it, I, you saw me. I'm drinking. I'm trying. I'm trying. Let me tell you. So I was an opiate addict and I'm comparing caffeine, man. I don't remember being this dumb. I have this brain fog that is 
absolutely ridiculous stopping caffeine. Right, right. Yeah. And they say the caffeine. It's the real deal. The real deal, man. So I'm not at that point. I can drink water throughout the day, but I'm not. I need to drink more. I'll drink a juice and I'll drink a Coke, you know, then I'll, then I'll have a water. Let me wrap this up. Thank you for chasing yeah, the vase. Thank oh, yeah, you. Sure, it was sure. our honor. You've been listening to Chase the Vase Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcasts to get new, fresh, weekly episodes. For more information, please follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook, or visit our website, chasethevase.com. Until next time, keep chasing the vase.